0: You may have seen the uh, commercials, the trailers for uh, a new film that's out in the theaters now, The Great Wall. Uh, I get the feeling just from what little I don't know much about it at all. I just from the trailers, it does look to be overlaying just a wee bit of, of fiction over the history, a bit of fantasy over the facts. But uh, the history and the facts of The Great Wall of China is worth knowing. Let me read uh, this little excerpt to you. Uh, it's... Rather interesting, in ancient China, the people desired to get security from the barbaric invading hordes from the north to get this protection they built, the Great Wall of China. It's 30 feet high, 18 feet thick, and more than 1,500 miles long. The Chinese goal was to build an absolutely impenetrable defense, too high to climb over, too thick to break down, and too long to go around. But during the first hundred years of the wall's existence, China was successfully invaded three times. It wasn't the wall's fault. During all three invasions, the barbaric hordes never climbed over the wall, broke it down, or went around it. They simply bribed the gatekeeper and then marched right in through an open door. Now, I could imagine, I have no idea if this is true, but I could imagine that with each successive incident in which this took place, it probably ratcheted up the job interview for Great Wall Gatekeeper. Um, That sort of betrayal sort of lends itself towards a a guardedness, right? Uh, After it happens, and then it happens again, and with increasing level of guardedness with each incident, Um, betrayal and disappointment and disillusionment and distrust, sadly, are common to human experience. All too common to, to human experience. And I think we would have to say at least two things in regards to that here at the outset as we're getting going here in this study. And that is on the one hand, with our own relationships one to another, fallen, broken people When it comes to disillusionment and betrayal and disappointment and distrust, it's really not a matter of if, but when. That's just how it is. It's not a matter of if, but when. But, when it comes to a relationship with the true and living God, with Jesus Christ, there is no if or when. For He is eminently trustworthy. Trustworthy. No cause whatsoever, no good cause whatsoever for distrust in Him. How how can we say that? How How can we know that? Because He is the merciful, in the richest sense of the word, the merciful King. If you have a Bible with you, I'd ask you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, we are picking up in our study through Matthew's Gospel. Slowly but surely. Uh, Matthew chapter 9, if you're trying to find that in your Bibles, that's in the New Testament. It's the first book of the New Testament. It's the first of the four Gospels that we have. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Matthew 9, we are picking up in verse 27 and reading on through verse 34. So Matthew chapter 9, we're going to read verses 27 to 34. Hear now the word of God. And as Jesus passed on from there, Two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-possessed man who was mute was brought to them. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this account. Thank you for inspiring Matthew these many years ago to write no more, no less than what you wanted. Uh, For your people's sake, that we would know, that we would know what happened and what we need to know about what happened. Thank you for working that day in the ways that you did, moving in the lives of these people, for teaching all who we there, especially those who had, in the deep sense, eyes to see. Oh, would we have eyes to see. Oh, would we have lips to speak of what we have seen. We've sung, open the eyes of our heart, Lord. That is our prayer this morning. Um, and if you do not, we will not. We pray in your name. Amen. So Matthew's aim here in his gospel is to help us to understand and to perceive, uh, recognize, honor Jesus as the one true king, as the anointed one, as the Messiah, as the long-awaited deliverer. His intent is that we would see that and and reckon with that in the deepest possible sense. He also wants us to recognize that there is a tension here in terms of when Jesus arrived and who he is coupled with how he was received uh, again and again. He is frustrating and confusing to those who, well, are seeing him, welcoming him in a sense, I suppose, um, but in a guarded way. Uh, Jesus, time and again, disrupted the people's expectations of what the king was supposed to be, of what the kingdom was supposed to be, of who the Messiah is and what his mission was about. He's disrupting those expectations, disillusioning, disappointing them in some respects. And yet at the same time, because of his ministry of word and deed, because of his teachings and his miracles, news continues to spread. Hope continues to rise. And so you end up with incidences like what we read of here in Matthew 9. Where in verse 27 we read, and as Jesus passed on from there, now there is obviously picking up on a geographic reference as well as a contextual reference to everything that has just come before, the events that Matthew has been describing, the teaching and the healing and, and, the, and, and the surprising things that Jesus is doing there. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. Now you, you need to understand, son of David. That is so significant. It is a title. It is not the same as referring to me as son of Malcolm. That doesn't work. It's my dad's name, just so that you know. Um, That's a title. The son of David. Now this is the first time Jesus has been referred to in this way directly by onlookers and witnesses, but it's not the first time Matthew has referred to him in this way. If you go back to the genealogy, Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, Jesus is referred to as the son of David. He is this royal figure. He is the successor, the great king that the people have been waiting for for so long. This one come to establish a universal and eternal reign and rule over all things forever. Restoring not just a royal line, not just restoring a royal people, but restoring the whole of the created order. Such is the weightiness, the freightiness of this king and his kingdom. As we sing uh, sometime here in this sanctuary, a great grand old song and hymn, he is great David's greater son. All that David was and more. Oh, so much more. He is the son of David, he has come as the one true king. Now, it begs a question, what does that mean? What kind of king are we talking about here? I alluded to that earlier. You know, we get nervous about a king. We don't even want, As part of us that, that longs for a king and a lot of, another part of us that chafes against the idea of a king. We need to be clear as to what this means. We actually get hints of it, though. We get hints of it in that, that request we could say a prayer in some respects, that, that request that these blind men make of Him, and then the events surrounding that here in Matthew 9. We get hints of who is this King and what is this kingdom about and what is it like? He has come as the one true King to whom we must bow and in whom we can trust and to whom we can turn. He is the one true King to whom we must bow, in whom we can trust, and in whom to whom we must then turn. And we see that He is, oh, the the mercy, the mercy of this King and the ways that this mercy uh, displays itself here in this text is so evident and so profound. I want you to see this. It's in the outline there. These three ways that we see his kingdom, his rule, his mercy, and the, the the need that we then have to to trust and turn to him in this in these three ways. First, the the power of his mercy impels that trust and turning. The patience of his mercy impels that trusting and turning, and then also the perseverance of his mercy impels that trusting and turning as well. So. That turning, let's turn to those. The first one, the power of his mercy. That is to say, the, his rule, his reign behind this expression of, of mercy. It's not just my mercy, your mercy, how limited even on our best days that can be. This is the power of the mercy of the king himself. How do we see that? Well, Jesus, in, in, in a short succession of, of just moments, here we read in Matthew 9, just a little bit of time is elapsing. He has two desperate needs. Uh, coming to being presented to him. First with these blind men. Again, verse 27. As Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. Now we don't know much about these guys and their story. We don't know how long they've been blind. We don't know how they know each other. Uh, We know certainly in the ancient world this means that they are, if you will, doomed to lives of poverty, unable to provide for themselves. And if they have families, their families either. We know at least that much. Um, We do know that though they are unable to see the visible world around them, that nonetheless, somehow, they are still able to perceive who Jesus is. At least to some degree. Because they come to him with their request and they speak of him in the way that they do. But there's yet another, another need, another desperate need uh, that we see here, and that's with this mute man. Uh, skipping down to verse 32, and as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. Now again, we don't know much about this gentleman's story. We don't know how he came to be demon-oppressed. We don't know how long he has been in this state of being unable to speak and, and also was that coupled with an inability to hear it oftentimes was. But we do know, at the least, if he's mute, he cannot sing. He cannot express himself vocally. He cannot shout. He cannot share his heart with people that he cares for with his lips, with his mouth, as he was created to. We know at least that much. And we also know that just the way in Matthew, how he describes this, this is, the, the, this, the physical affliction is separated from the spiritual affliction. There is a spiritual affliction. These forces, these demonic forces are real and their their effect is felt in this man in a physical way. He cannot speak. He cannot speak. These are desperate needs being presented here uh, to Jesus and he meets them with declarative words. Uh, Sight is gained. We go back to verse 28. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he Touch their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. Now, by the way, that's not, to the, in the, to the proportion that you believe, I will then help you see. Okay, so this guy kind of believes like 50%, so one eye is fixed. Or, or, you know, like he's got, you know, 20, 50 vision or some sort. That's not what, it means, as you do believe, I'm going to heal you. Like, you believe, I'm healing. It's not proportionality or anything like that. It's just one, boom, the other. That's what he's saying. And by the way, praise God, he's not limited in his healing to heal those who believe. We see that again and again. You cannot box what he is going to do in very well at all. We see that throughout the Gospels. That's another sermon. Um, And now I've forgotten this one. Uh, Okay, so he heals. What we see here is the maker and sustainer of all things, touching and restoring one of his creatures. And this man is able to see. Declarative word. You see it again, though, in the the next event. Now, it's not said explicitly, but it's certainly implied that he speaks here again, given we know of all the other times that Jesus does this sort of thing Uh, Verse 33, and when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. Now here you have the rightful heir to the throne moving forward and driving out, literally, a vandal, a usurping force, an insurrectionist force, a trespassing force, driving them out, this demon, be gone. You do not belong here. You have no claim here. You have no right here. Be gone. And he is gone. And all effects of his presence are gone. And this man speaks. These desperate needs met by these declarative words, all of which points us towards the power of Jesus' mercy. The power of his mercy mercy. He has no rivals. Ultimately, there is no competition. He is the one true king. His power, unchecked, uncheckable. Some of you may have seen this news story. Uh, I just came across it. It's a few weeks old. I just saw it this past week. But uh, believe it or not, the earth is slowing down. I'm not making this up. The scientists have figured this out um, by using certain kinds of measurements. That the, the rotation of the Earth is slowing down. The length of the solar days is actually lengthening. Now, going back thousands of years, by the rate of now, don't get too concerned. You don't need to adjust your daily planner yet. 1.8 millisecond per century. Okay. So yeah, you wanted a longer day. You got it. Um, but, but you know, I'm, I'm thinking about that. I was like, whoa, there's a planet. It happens to be this one. Slowing down in its turning. Now, what, I almost had this vision in my mind of a big ball and a giant hand. A big ball turning and a giant hand moving across that ball to slow it down. I'm like, what size hand does it take to slow down a ball like that? Well, the, the experts of scientists believe actually it's, it's the tides. It's some effect. I don't understand. I haven't been digging that far into the article. It's the flow of the movement of the tides. It seemed to have something to do with the slowing of this rotation. Okay, but who moves the tides? Who created the waves? Who created water? Who has all of this? My point being, the power of this mercy has no rival has no ultimately no competition. Um, And with God's mercy, it it begins always this way, with a feeling sense of the heart, compassion, something from deep, deep within, a feeling that then moves. It begins with this feeling, this earnestness, this ache, and then action. Which I think takes us into at least two things to think about. The first would be, that um, followers of this king should recognize something in that of an example of what our own mercy should look like. That it should begin with a sense of feeling an ache, but then a movement to action. The heart would be moved and then the hands and the feet would be moved. There's something in that. There's an example here that, that we should be reckoning with. But it's not just that, but it's a hope. Because this is a merciful king towards us. So we know ourselves as His people, as His followers then, to not only need to show such mercy, but to need such mercy ourselves. And to know that we can go to Him and cry out to Him as these men did, Son of David, have mercy on me! I am confused. I need wisdom. I am... Tempted, I need strength. I am under trial. I need endurance. I am hurting. I need comfort. I am adrift in a storm. I need peace. To know that He is the, the Son of David to whom that we can go and cry out for mercy and know that there is power in His mercy such that there is a sense of expectancy as we go to Him and cry out to Him. He is the one true King to whom we must bow and in whom we can trust and then turn, knowing the power of His mercy. Moving on though, there's something else we see here. As though that wasn't enough, we see also the patience of His mercy. So here we're shifting now from His rule and reign to His wisdom and care. Now, how do we see that here? It's, it's worth noting. These, just looking at these two blind men as they come, we have so little to go on with the, the, the mute gentlemen, so we're just going to have to kind of look here at the, the two blind men. But we see enough, if you will, in, in what they see and what they don't. Um, they come to Jesus that day with flawed expectations. Um, great expectations, but see, nonetheless flawed. Now, they, these men surely knew, uh, given the society and culture from which they have come, They surely knew the ancient prophecies that speak of the Messiah and the Messiah's work in this way. I'm just going to read this to you if you want to refer to it later. It's Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. And this is part of a larger context. All of it's well worth reading in chapter 35. But let me just read you one and a half verses. Five and first half of six. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped, then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Sounds like background to Matthew 9. So, you could, you could see the reasoning behind how these guys were probably thinking there that day. Okay, Jesus seems to be Son of David, the Messiah. He therein has power to, to, to save, to heal, to restore our sight. He is the Messiah, he is the Son of David, come with healing in His hands, the merciful one. Okay, that, right, that checks. The if-then statements are consistent. However, then they move to make certain assumptions and leaps of logic. They now are assuming that he will see that they can't see, and their greatest need must then be the restoration immediately of their sight. It's got to be. What else could it be is how they're thinking. But Jesus has a much greater agenda for them. A much fuller agenda for them and for us. And I don't know if you, if you saw this in, in, in uh, the text, but it's, it's worth noting how Matthew records this. So they come to Him. They're following Him. You see this in verse 27. They cry out to Him. And then we read in the next verse, when He entered the house, the blind men followed. You see what's happening here. Jesus turns away from them. He doesn't answer them. He ignores them. He's testing them, likely because of—we don't know for sure, but at least partially, probably because of the political overtones of the title that they have just spoken of him. You know, the, the son of David—that's like gunpowder. Okay, that's doesn't exist yet at that time, but anyway, um, uh, y- y- that's not—that's dangerous. It's going to get the Romans' attention in a bad way. So likely, he's kind of okay, moving away from this. And if you want to deal with this which apparently they do. So he tests them, then he questions them. He presses into them. But he asks them, do you believe? Do you believe that I can do this? Now, why is he asking? For whose sake is he asking this question? For his or for theirs? Theirs. He wants them to answer the question. He wants them to vocalize this. He wants them to own something. He wants to push them, draw them out, mature this budding baby faith within them to push them along, to enable them to see yet more of who He is before He actually restores their sight. So He tests them for their sake because He has this fuller agenda in mind. Such, you see, He's not going to be rushed. He's not going to be pressured. Such is the patience of the outworking of his mercy. Such is uh, the wisdom and his care that it's not going to be pressured and pushed along. Some years ago, we were running a science experiment in our house. Um, we had, uh, for the sake of our kids, this hanging mesh net. Now, it's you know uh, sealed at the top and sealed at the bottom. Full of these little caterpillars, things like about... Five feet tall, you hang it from a ceiling, you put the caterpillars in, and then over time these little guys make cocoons, and then over after some number of weeks go by, then of course the little caterpillars come out, and they're not caterpillars anymore. They actually have wings. Oh my goodness. And they are moths, and then you can let them go. And it's really, it's just amazing, absolutely amazing. You know what, God's creativity and how He has done this. But here's the thing: you have to let metamorphosis run its course. If you just got to see, got to know what's going on there, or you want to rush it along and you cut open that cocoon, you have just doomed that little critter to stunted development with either no wings or flawed, frail wings that are just going to beat and not fly. You have to let the process run its course You see where I'm going with this? The Lord in His mercy, in the patience of His mercy, will not be hurried or harried or pressured by us. He simply will not. For our own sakes, He will not. He has a fuller agenda in mind. Now, I'm not interested in that, and neither are you, if you're honest. I want relief and resolution yesterday. I don't even want the problem in front of me. Presenting itself. So I want the relief and the resolution before that even came on the scene. And if it's going to be on the scene, then I want an immediate. I mean, right? I mean, we, we Westerners, and it's, just, it's a human thing, but we, we live our minute rice and our microwaves on our Instapots. And all that's fine. Except when it comes to our insistence in, in these things being resolved and fixed. You know, the problems at work The weaknesses of our bodies, Um, the troubles, oh the troubles of our families. We we want to we're okay maybe with learning the lessons so long as you can give it to me in a book and not through means that only come by pain. The rub comes that uh, in, in how sometimes over the course of such seasons we begin to lose our way and the, the right longing, understandable longing. I mean, of course we don't want the pain. Not if we're sane. The rub comes though when enough time goes by in the midst of that season when that understandable longing not for the pain begins to get bent and twisted in a certain direction. which then calls for some correction. Job needed that. I don't know if how familiar you are with the book of Job. Uh, Job goes through, technical terms would be a heck of a lot. Um, and uh, great loss, great grief, great agony in all kinds of ways. Made all the worse by men, friends, that he refers to as miserable counselors. And uh, it just begins to wear the poor man down such that he, is, he begins well and he's, just, he's, he's losing steam. And, and finally, the Lord has to step in to intervene because He's drifting. His direction needs to be checked. And you get to chapter 38 and God speaks. Here's what you read. I'm just going to read four verses. We could read three chapters because it goes on like this for three chapters. Job's left a little puddle. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Where were you? Where were you? Where was I? Nowhere. I don't know a thing. I know know less than a thing. Such is His wisdom and care. His wisdom and care, the, the patience of His mercy, you see, impels, frees, allows us to trust Him and turn to Him. Turn to Him as the one true rightful King such as the power of His mercy, such as the patience of His mercy, but one last thing, and that is the perseverance of His mercy. And and here we move not just from reign and rule to wisdom and care, but what I'll call faithful toughness of His love. The faithful toughness of His love. The perseverance of His mercy. Jesus meets a lot of stubborn resistance just in this account. Just in this account, now, he's meeting it all the time, all the course, and, and still today. Uh, but but the stubborn resistance we see it with the blind men, picking up verse thirty where we left off, and then their, their eyes were open, and Jesus sternly warned them, "See that no one knows about it." But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. So Jesus makes a very simple request. And by the way, the the wording here is, I mean, it's, he says it in a strong, strong way. I mean, it's like it, this is not a suggestion; it's a command. It's in the imperative. He orders them. He commands them not to say anything. You know, just I know you can't hide it. I mean, you're not going to be able to hide the fact that now you can see, but you don't need to go be going around trumpeting it. Now, why? What's Jesus' rationale there? Because he has a mission. He has a mission that's going to be compromised to some degree. His ability to continue in the teaching of the good news of the coming of the kingdom and that, that the evidences of that brought forth in, in the miracles that he can work, and, and so that it's not a mob scene. He's got a mission, so he's got to keep the mob in check. And so he makes this request, and how do they respond? They believed him enough to ask for help, but not enough to listen and to obey. Does that sound like you and me? At least it does me. They believed Him enough to ask for help, but not enough to obey. Their trust went pretty far, but not far enough. You see the resistance. It gets worse. We have the Pharisees picking up in verse 33. Uh, And the crowds marveled halfway through verse 33. And the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said He cast out demons by the Prince of Demons. So, okay, who are the Pharisees? That's a long answer to that question. I'll just simply put it this way. These are religious authorities. These are experts in the Old Testament law. They should have known. They should have known. No one can deny what's happened. Everybody on the scene knows this man was oppressed by a demon and mute. Jesus acts. Demon's gone. He speaks. No denying. They have no category for this, however. They have no ability to say, oh, this is of God. It's of someone. Two categories. It's of Satan. Do you see, the resistance... That Jesus is meeting here as He's moving forward and carrying out this ministry there in the streets of Capernaum. Um, But praise His name, His love is relentless. Despite the resistance that He meets, His love is relentless. It is tenacious. It It is tough. Uh, Now, surely he had to have been... And by that, please don't understand, I'm not saying he had a tough heart. A hard heart. That's not what I mean. It's a tough love that keeps pressing, that keeps going, that doesn't back down or give up. That's what I mean. Hey, how, how disappointed had to he have been, right? Greatly. I mean, as he was when later on in the Gospels we read when he questions his disciples... After great, I mean, time and again, the evidences that they have had, and he has to say to them, Are you so slow? Or or there as he's weeping over Jerusalem, or there in in the the town of of, um, Bethany, outside the tomb of his dear friend, that tomb, not home, tomb of his dear friend Lazarus, and he is fuming, fuming at the effect and impact of sin and death on this world. Oh, He is disappointed. And He is here, surely. But He is not deterred. He is not deterred. He he, he continues to press in, to keep going, to continue to preach, to continue to teach, to continue to heal, no matter if people understand who He is, what He's saying, or what He's come to do. He keeps going. He keeps... Pressing such as the perseverance of His mercy, there is a, a steadiness here that can be cannot be knocked off its course. I mean, I, th- I think of like we just had the Super Bowl. What was it? Two weeks ago now? Um, you know, it's, it's like it's like a, a player suiting up for the game with a brace on the leg, and I think the center of the Falcons actually did this. Um, a player suiting up the game, brace on the leg, so that because he is planning on and does play on a broken leg throughout the game. Or, or, you know, now we're in a different season, of course, basketball. So it's, you've got the, the player, he's driving down the court, he goes up for the layup, the defensive player takes his legs out from under him, boom, he's crashed down onto the hard floor. And he pops back up to get on and play another play. I mean, such as the tenaciousness here, the toughness, the determination to keep pressing. Here's the good news, Jesus is not like us. He's not like you, and he's not like me. Just be honest. We're midway through February. How are your New Year's resolutions going? This is really good news, that he is not like us. And his mercy is not like ours. That goes and piddles out. That is is conditioned on response. That will only go but so far, and, and with such feeling and fervor. His ways are, His mercy is not like ours. I mean, honestly, I mean, not just think about the resolutions, now just think about how how many times have you had promises given to you and they were broken? How many times have people disappointed you? His ways, are His mercy is not like ours. It perseveres. It presses forward. Now, that's an example to us as well, just like as as I was saying uh, earlier. There's an element here in which we should heed this. As his followers, we should be taking lead here. Let him take lead here. He is our leader, our example, our model in a world that is dying, looking for, starving for, thirsting for, perseverance and faithfulness to promises and integrity. That should typify us, but is more than just example. Oh, so much more. Again, here, he's our, not just our model, but our hope. Because we need this kind of mercy, and we have it. Do you know the degree to which he can see our blind spots and knows it already and still wants to deal with us? Now, the blind spots are usually things we're not aware of. How about the things we are aware of? I don't know what that term would be. Maybe just areas of rebellion. He knows that too. Or the... the, the, Uh, arenas, the struggles, the ways that we regress time and time and again on the same thing. He knows that. The questions that we keep asking and refuse to be settled in. He knows that. And His love, His mercy will not be deterred. He sticks with us. This is a covenantal love. A covenantal love that then impels and allows and frees release and relief and transparency before Him and trust and turning to Him as the one true King whose mercy is powerful, whose mercy is patient, and whose mercy is persevering. Let me end with this. If... uh, some of you know I'm something of an avid reader, and sometimes I do get the, asked the question, so what are you reading these days? And oftentimes that will yield a surprising answer, because I'm rather eclectic in what I read. These days I'm reading through the Harry Potter books. Uh, actually rereading them, uh, just to say be straight with you, because I read them to our kids when they were young. But now I'm reading them to myself, just for myself. And uh, now you want to know, maybe you don't, I don't know, let's pretend you do, Uh, who's my favorite character within the series? Well, I will say Albus Dumbledore is one I'm certainly drawn to, but, you know, when you think in terms of his, uh, this is the headmaster of Hogwarts, you people, you you muggles who don't know what I'm talking about. Um, The the power, such as, you know, he's the only one that can keep Voldemort. His his power checked. Uh, His wisdom, such that he can be relied and counted on time and time. His insight again and again and again. But also his mercy. His mercy that is just so shocking and beautiful and surprising. I just finished reading a few days ago um, the second book, Chamber of Secrets. And you get to towards the end of that, that story, and Harry, as is typical, has broken more rules than you can shake a wand at. And uh, you get to the end, and, and Dumbledore... Um, rather than punishing or penalizing him, actually rewards him for his bravery. But not just that. Harry is beating himself up. He is broken down deep within, questioning and doubting himself. And Dumbledore says these words, It is our choices, Harry, that show what we truly are far more than our abilities. That's a beautiful moment. It's one that, That's the kind of thing you find again and again through those series. The, the mercy of this powerful figure uh, expressed towards this young man. What's my point? Where am I going with this? How does that connect in any way at all with Jesus as the one true king whose mercy, uh, the power and and, uh, patience and perseverance of it? I'll tell you how. Because his mercy and strength is so powerful and so overwhelming that it echoes forth in our favorite stories. It cannot be suppressed. It just keeps coming out in all kinds of surprising ways. Um, It's as though history and reality here bleeds over somehow again and again into our legends, our stories, and our fiction. His compassion, His mercy cannot be contained It simply comes out again and again and again. It is so compelling. It comes out again and again and again. Such is the mercy of this one true King. It is a wonder to behold if we will have but eyes to see it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you please... Son of David.